Major support for Out to Lunch on WWNO provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with more than 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, joneswalker.com, and from Iberia Bank, offering comprehensive banking services designed to meet the needs of consumer, small business, and commercial clients, serving Louisiana clients for 100 128 years and now serving a regional base with a commitment to developing people and investing in its communities. IberiaBank.com. Additional support comes from Luba Workers Comp and 30 North Investments. From Commander's Palace Restaurant in the Garden District in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and economist. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. With all the talk about changes in the music business, the most inefficient, labor-intensive, unwieldy business model is still humming along some 400 years after it got started. In this organization, there's an extraordinary duplication of labor with multiple people doing the exact same job. There are massive transportation issues, and the whole business relies on highly skilled manual workers. I'm talking about the classical musical orchestra. If you live in New Orleans or Mexico and you have any interest in orchestras, you probably heard the name Carlos Miguel Prieto. If you're in Mexico, you probably know him as the conductor of the Mexico Symphony Orchestra. If you live in New Orleans, you might know Carlos as the music director and principal conductor of the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra. As far as I know, the two orchestras know about each other, and Mr. Prieto is allowed to hold down two day jobs at the same time. Now, whether you know Carlos by his New Orleans or Mexican gig, or you know him by his reputation as a recognized figure in classical music around the world, did you know this? Carlos has an MBA, a master's in business administration from no less a college than Harvard. Carlos Miguel Prieto, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. The LPO is not the only orchestra in New Orleans. The Naked Orchestra might sound like a Mardi Gras crew or a burlesque show, but it is, in fact, a free jazz orchestra. The Naked Orchestra has a rotating cast of musicians, composers, guest artists, and core contributors. And you can find the recordings on iTunes and other places where great music is sold, streamed, or stolen. The Naked Orchestra has been in business for nearly 20 years under the guidance and leadership of its founder and director, composer and guitarist, Jonathan Freilich. Jonathan, welcome out to lunch. Oh, thank you. Now, Carlos, I'm very interested to learn about the connection between classical music and business studies. I'm sure there are valuable lessons in management that come in handy running an orchestra, but you could probably have picked up a lot of that in a few weeks of intensive reading over the summer on a beach somewhere. You were obviously a highly talented classical musician. What made you want to take a detour from that career path and go to business school? I, I wish I knew. <laughs> if, I, if, if I knew, I wouldn't have taken it. <laughs> you are not going to be in the Harvard booklet, by the way. There's a this <laughs> No, don't take me wrong. I enjoyed every second, and I am one of those people who completely... Um, are not in agreement with the career path for a certain thing, so I don't regret anything I did. I also studied engineering, and I don't regret it. Uh, I think that life is just an opportunity to learn as much as you can from everything, and everything works. If, if I'm not going to sell you the idea that having gone to Harvard MBA is the career path to become a conductor, 
I didn't know that I wanted to become a conductor when I went to. Oh, the, okay, the all right, that but helps the chronology. You know, here. whether it, it whether it's worth going, I would say it's worth going if you have a chance because it's a way to interact with some of the smartest people you will ever meet, some of the most diverse people you will ever meet, and get to know a a a, a place where education is absolutely first rate. Wow. Now, day to day. You're, man you're managing a lot of people. Does some of those skills uh, help you out? I think one of the skills that helps you out the most there, uh, because uh, Harvard Business School is very much depending on oral case uh, resolution and oral communication. One of the things you learn from day one there is that if you speak out and you haven't thought what you said or what you have said is not coherent, you're going to be destroyed. Destroyed so immediately by very smart people who actually are there not to destroy you, but just to you know, outplay you or whatever. So I think one of the things that you learn immediately is to speak in public coherently, briefly, and to think before you say anything. <laughs> Jonathan, the tales of difficulty of running a band are legendary, from Spinal Tap to Miles Davis. Sometimes hilarious, sometimes tragic, but pretty much always an exercise in herding cats. The Naked Orchestra is a larger and way more ambitious project than a traditional four-piece band. I'm sure as a jazz composer, there are pieces of work you'd like to hear performed by a larger ensemble, and for that reason, having an orchestra must be wonderful. But as director and running the business side of the Naked Orchestra, do you enjoy being in management? Um, well, I have a system for it, oh, which yes. is that the directive system for, for the group is music, so that the interest is maintained by having a kind of music that people can't do unconsciously and that they all, that I, it's my challenge, I have to keep them all interested by writing or introducing musical ideas that'll keep them there. And then the business follows as, as well as can be expected under the circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> you did this without a business degree, apparently. No, I have no business degree. I, it was, well, it was too hard getting music together. <laughs> <laughs> And what is free jazz? It's not really what I do. There is no such thing. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I think there was a, no, uh, uh, a name for a while for what basically is a situation of creativity that's open to all the kinds of American vernacular music. But in the, the thing is, Naked Orchestra is that we have people, really what that music was about, what that band was about, is having people from all different kinds of backgrounds. So I have uh, classical musicians in there, but people from various stripes of jazz musician, people from other backgrounds, and the idea was to develop a kind of music. Initially, it goes through phases, because music changes. It's been together for 20 years, but you want to develop a kind of music in there that, uh, that makes it so that all of those people can work together. Yeah, people from different ideas, and then, and, then, and then there's a very interesting understanding that begins to accrue between people. And you have appreciation for a lot of different kinds of music. You were one of the people that founded the uh, the Klezmer All Stars. Yeah, Klezmer All Stars. I'm always involved in some kind of uh, some kind of crazy vernacular music band. I wouldn't live without it. But you're not the, the orchestra's not naked. No, it's is a that metaphor. Marketing is that, or is a metaphor? Is that illegal? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you picked the right town. How is it a metaphor? We do a lot of things in music to, pr to promote music, whether it was, you know, Mozart with casual use of Turkish instruments in order to get people interested. Whatever, there's different ways to get people interested. But sometimes the things you use to get them interested can become more important than the actual thing itself. So supposing you remove everything, then it'd be naked. 
Oh, all right. How, what's your business model? How do you guys make money? Is it now subscriptions, I guess, in your case? Uh, membership? I, I think uh, Classical or Orchestra has the worst business model that you will ever see in your life. Because if we, if we sell out every single seat in the house, if we sell every single seat by subscription, every single extra seat, we can actually hope to get about a third of what we spent. Wow, okay? wow. Which means, first of all, that there is not the word profit there. <laughs> Which and was used so often in but Cambridge the problem, school. Yeah, and the other problem is that you have to find a way to get 60-something, 60 65 or 70 percent of what you need you know, to operate. But this is Berlin, New York, Chicago, LPO, anywhere. Some places that difference is put by the government. That's the case of my orchestra in Mexico. It's state funded. And it's good, but it's also different. And here we rely on the generosity of donors, on the generosity and the creativity of the administration. And uh, a lot of... Uh, fundraising of all kinds so it's it's that's why I say the business model and I just whenever I hear the word classical music industry I just <laughs> chuckle because it's not an industry you know I mean a, any company that would at, mo at most make 30% not even not even no profit 30% of cost I mean you would get fired if you're heading that company <laughs> or or bankrupt but the truth is that classical music has its income in a different realm than finance. Right, doesn't show up in the income statement there. They, uh, now, Jonathan, what about yourself? Where does, how does this model work? Uh, this model works like piracy. It goes like this. <laughs> you go in, whatever's available at the end of the shot, you split it up, divide it up, and then run off and back out to the back other room. I'm not joking. <laughs> no, you know, in a way, it's very egalitarian. There is no middleman. There's no disturbance exactly that way. Unfortunately, it's not far off uh, of what they're doing. I, our profit margin is slightly better, which means that instead of losing a third, it breaks slightly less than even. I, I have to spend wow. a lot of money to print charts and store out so rehearsals and whatnot. And, and <laughs> I'm starting to feel bad about this whole program. <laughs> theirs, they, is, theirs is much more of an expensive. Well, hey, but you have something uh, that's interesting on a management point of view, and that is uh, rotating musicians. Somewhat. Somewhat. I mean, you know, but part of that is because of career changes, deaths, all kinds of things. I'm, I'm not sure. So sure you have different, all orchestras have members coming in and out of it, and pieces. And the other thing is that like, like them, there's some, sometimes where I write music that doesn't require everything or everybody uh, that's composers do and I will write rewrite pieces rather than just hire people who are wrong for the job oh, rewrite them around the instruments I will do that Wow yes. now what about could could you make money with a chamber orchestra would that be different well I mean I guess you could make money if if what you do is of a uh, I guess, in, I mean, in classical music of a highly commercial nature. I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a f very famous violinist, and I'm not, I'm, ju I'm just citing him. I'm not criticizing what he does at all. His name is André Rieu, okay? André Rieu presents classical music that everyone loves, okay? Strauss waltzes and the, the, the just beloved kind of easy listening pieces. 
He presents them with an orchestra that's dressed like you would imagine they are they dressed in, in Vienna. And they present a very visual show that draws in a lot, a lot of people, which is great because a lot of people hear classical music. But they repeat these programs maybe, I don't know, 30 times in, in, in a period of two months or maybe 30 times in a month, I don't know. That same program uh, that has a little bit of choreography, a little bit of show, etc., etc. And that's what they do. And I imagine that that kind of orchestra makes money, okay? Probably makes a lot of money. Uh, but it's, co it's a completely different world from what we do. We, we present a different program every single week. And uh, I think that, that the audience will reward you in a different way uh, long term by presenting this variety rather than always playing what everyone wants to hear all the time and every single opportunity. Which is what you would do if profit was your entire motive. Yes, yeah. and the, but you know, we, cannot f we cannot go for that because if, if profit were our ulterior motive, we wouldn't have the musicians we have. One of the reasons the musicians are here is because they like to play interesting music, different music. They like to play Beethoven 5, which is our bread and butter, but they also like to explore new things. And when you explore new things, you, m you make huge mistakes, but you also are open to making uh, a possibility of a great adventure. And the other thing is you are the face of, of, the, uh, of the group. Do you, does that mean you have to go out and do a lot of fundraising people yeah. want to see you I think yeah yeah I mean it is which is good and bad I mean I don't mind fundraising and I don't mind meeting people it's very exciting you're younger me. than I thought you'd be you well, with I all these I, I, awards. you know it's weird because most people think that for what I do you have to be very old have either a lot of hair or no hair or hair out of your ears That's or what hair I remember, out of yes. your ears etc and that you have to act a certain certain way the truth is that most people who do what I do don't adhere to that anymore okay and you know th all these are we face very uh, sad stereotypes one of them is that what we do is very expensive one, another that it's very inaccessible and the third one is that you have to know anything to enjoy what we do all three are things that we try breaking every day because we are not that expensive we are very accessible and very inclusive Jonathan, you don't have as many stereotypes to deal with people. No, no, I have exactly the same problem. Really, you do? In fact, I think it's a universal musical problem. You know, because either, either, you, either you're marketing yourself according to stereotypes, or you're trying to do something about it. And I don't think there's too many, many ways out of it. Because really, you know, especially in America, we don't, we have very, it's hard to say what position music really has in our culture anymore exactly, in terms of meaning. In terms of product, we know. And so the problem is that stereotypes accumulate very heavily when you have things marketed in terms of product rather than idea. It's very difficult. Like, in other words, like, you know, you're well, no matter, no matter you also didn't happened. look like I thought you'd look. This is great. Oh, yes. really? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I look I, older. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, fit was the word I was going to use. Yeah. They, uh, <laughs> now, Carlos, Jonathan, let's do a round of one quick question. These are questions that have come in from listeners, and I'm going to ask you one each. Uh, Carlos, I'll start with you. This question came in on our Facebook page for you from AJ Allegra. Uh, AJ says, how do the buying habits of millennials, who are the future patron base of the orchestra, affect the programming of the orchestral season? Uh, is it something you consider when selecting pieces, or is it more of a, a marketing problem to tackle? Here is the deal, is that uh, I, I, it, it's, 
a, a very simple temptation would be for us to kind of say, okay, millennials or young people or whatever are not going to be interested in Haydn anymore because Haydn, you know, lived 250 years ago or Bach or whatever. And the more I do concerts for young people here or in Mexico or whatever, the more I see that they are incredibly impacted by Bach or by Renaissance music. So it has nothing to do with music being made today. It just has to do with how you play it. In other words, how well you play it. That doesn't mean that you have to play it, you know, smiling more because millennials <laughs> smile more. No. <laughs> so I guess the idea of not having, of not being scared of programming anything or of presenting it in a certain way or selling it a certain, a certain way. But for us, it just comes down to just trust the music, play good music, play interesting music, be, a, be alive, be connected with people who are making music right now. I mean, you have to think a band, they're creating probably sometimes even new music and even in jazz as we speak. We have to be as close to that as possible. All right. Now, Jonathan, here's a question for you from Pierre Valence. Uh, Pierre says, for a city that is supposedly the birthplace of jazz, there are very few places to hear jazz here. Is there a reason for that? Do you think locals wouldn't go and tourists only want Bourbon Street? Um, you know, things go in, in cycles, but I think one of the main problems that New Orleans does have right now with that is that I think probably because of the storm, but the tourist economy has taken off to the point where locals don't really think that the places where the music is going on, I mean, besides the LPO, but things like that, is really for them. They strike you as tourist places. They strike me as tourist places when I'm playing in them, which is a real change from what it was, say, 20 years ago. And so I think that that makes it hard because that's the stereotypes again. Really, what, how does tourism sell? Tourism sells by, by marketing the stereotypes of a place that people want, would want to buy coming in. So it's very fixed. But there were several kinds of jazz movements in New Orleans over, over 100 years. But really, we're down to a very f small number in there. And people think they know what they're going to hear. That's problematic, because you have a form where they're trying to stay alive and stay on the edge. Does the, are those two things compatible? I don't know. You know and so what did they come, those tourists, they're here to hear Dixieland, I guess? And yeah, it's a mixture between Dixieland or the funk music or the brass band music or things that are things that are largely known outside. Dr. John, you know, yep. which is a it's not we're not uh, no one can back down from the from the importance that that had in the history of music here, but it certainly isn't the only thing. And it, like, if you have to make a kind, you also have to make a distillation or a con you have to in a way you're making a compression. You're shaving the edges off the the details off of the off of the variety. It's of funny, John, because every you know, I mean, on the other side, everybody that visits here will always ask somebody like, where do the locals go to hear this music? But uh, well, they, they used to. That's the thing. I mean, New Orleans used to only be. I mean, when I first moved here, the bars were fueled by locals. That was it. There was by the bars. They were in the local. That was locals where the people went out to see it. And then if you came in as a traveler, more than a tourist, and you were like, uh, "Where's the music going on?" Somebody, you might be lucky. Somebody was like, "There's a place up that street over there. <laughs> you want to go in there? It's going to be really good." What is it? I don't know. Go check it out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this used to be a lot more the thing. But I think there's a mode of survival here. But the changes in New Orleans are quite striking uh, in terms of that. And so I think that, that contributes to why people aren't seeing that as much. 
Well, you yeah. should put a plug in for locals to get out of their houses and go, right? Uh, you should put a big plug in for locals. <laughs> the locals need to go. In fact, in fact, if they went, it would change the music. Uh -huh. That would alter it massively. People would respond to that in a big way because you can't, you know, you, you know, you can't, you can't fool the people in their own house. So you're going to have to come up with something else, you know. You know, when we hear the sentence, New Orleans is a music town, very few people who say it are thinking of classical music or avant-garde jazz orchestras. But there's no doubt that in their fields, the LPO and the Naked Orchestra are every bit the equal of Rebirth or the meters. Like y'all's music, it's been both enlightening and entertaining to talk to you today. Thank you both for taking the time to join me on Out to Lunch. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Carlos Miguel Prieto, the musical director and principal conductor of the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra, and composer and guitarist Jonathan Freilich, founder and director of the Naked Orchestra. You can find out more about Carlos and Jonathan's orchestras by following the links on our websites. It's neworleans.com and www.no.org. Our show is recorded live over lunch at Commander's Palace in New Orleans. Commander's Palace serves lunch Monday through Friday, jazz brunch on Saturday and Sunday, and live music and dinner seven nights a week. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our researcher is Matthew Ellison. Mitch Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. Mitch's music, including his latest record, Puzzle, is at MitchellForeman.com. You can get the show as a podcast, you can listen to past shows, and you can keep up with us on all kinds of social media by going to our websites, www.no.org and itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we look like, and spoiler alert, Jonathan is not naked, you can find <laughs> photos from the show on our website and Facebook page. These photos were taken today by Allison Moon. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Commander's Palace for more business, New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch on WWNO provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with more than 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, JonesWalker.com, and from Iberia Bank, offering comprehensive banking services designed to meet the needs of consumer, small business, and commercial clients, serving Louisiana clients for 100 128 years and now serving a regional base with a commitment to developing people and investing in its communities, IberiaBank.com. Additional support comes from Luba Workers Comp and 30 North Investments.